Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're in the book of Haggai, in your Old Testament. So we hope you brought a Bible. After all, we call this a Bible study, and we feel it's good to have a Bible so that you have something to study. So the book of Haggai, there's only two short chapters in it, and that will be our purview and our study for this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, it's so great to gather as a family in a comfortable environment, in a place and in a setting where all hearts and eyes and ears are focused on you, where we've quieted ourselves before you, and we're all ears Our hearts are wide open. We want to take what we read and what you have spoken in the past and hear your will for our lives in the present. In hearing, Lord, we also rely on your Holy Spirit just as much as this teacher is resting upon your Spirit for that activity. We pray, Father, you'd meet us here. We pray, Lord, as we study, we would learn and respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this Friday at 6 o'clock, the new iPhone is going to be unveiled for all the world to see. If you have not heard the hype, you haven't been listening to television or radio for like a, a month. But it's like they call it the device of the decade. And Apple has proven that if you build it, they will come. Because already two days ago, people are lining up in New York, spending all day in the heat, spending the night, going through it again for several days, up until Friday at 6 p.m. when that phone will be sold. Yesterday they started the lines in Utah. When they'll start here, I don't know but I plan to be in one of them. (laughs) Remember back in 1989, was it that the film Field of Dreams captured the imagination and the hearts of America? It was about an Iowa farmer who built this baseball diamond in a cornfield. And these voices were supposedly speaking to him, ease the pain. If you build it, they will come. And the idea was that in building this baseball diamond in the middle of nowhere, baseball greats from the past would somehow come to life and play this magnificent game in this field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. I've titled this book of Haggai, If You Build It, He Will Come. And here's the meaning. The temple of God had been in disrepair for a number of years. Though the children of Israel had come back, they didn't finish building the temple. And God, through this prophet, says, If you build this temple, the glory of God will manifest Himself there. God's presence will be among you as you re-inaugurate your worship to, to Jehovah, to God. So if you build it, He will come. But the people were getting tired. Oh, they knew it should be done, but there was just so much work. And by the way, there weren't many people to do the work. A very small minority of the Jews in Babylon after the captivity, only 50,000 of them returned back to the land of Israel. A very small minority in comparison to those who were still there. So there weren't many people to do the work, and the people doing the work were tired. Reminds me of this quote I've always loved. It says, there are 200 million Americans, 86 million are over 65, and 76 million are under 21. That leaves only 38 million to do the work. But 6 million are in the armed forces. That leaves 32 million to do the work. But 6 million are on welfare, and that leaves 26 million to do the work. But 15 million work for the government. I didn't write this, by the way. 
Don't shoot the messenger. That leaves 11 million to do the work. 10 million are in school. That leaves 1 million to do the work. But 750,000 are disabled or sick. That leaves 250,000 people to do the work. Last week, there were 249,998 people in jail. That leaves two people to do the work. And since you don't do much, no wonder I'm so tired. (laughs) Okay, that's a funny little quip, and it's not true. But sometimes we feel in the work of God, well, we're the only ones doing the work. No wonder we're so tired. Let me give you the background to where we're at. The last three prophets, we call them post-exilic prophets. They come after the exile, after the captivity. These last three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi deserve a little bit of background painting to understand the situation. The year that we're going to start in here in chapter 1, verse 1, the year is 520 B.C. 520 B.C. Now this is what's been happening. 16 years prior to this date, 536 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia, gave the first edict allowing the Jews who had been in the Babylonian captivity to return. And as I mentioned, only 50,000 of them, the minority, returned. When they got back, they started working hard. They had a vision, a common goal. It was exciting. They started cleaning up the city, clearing the rubble from the temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar years before. They even went so far as rebuilding the brass altar, the altar of sacrifice, out in the outer court of the temple. They reinstituted some of the sacrifices. It was exciting for a while. But as time wore on, trouble happened. Discouragement occurred. The first thing that happened is they had some neighbors who were creating trouble. Oh, they said, we want to build the temple with you. We're part of the work of God as you are. But they were really trying to hinder the work of God. Number two, Cyrus, that king who allowed the Jews to go back, died. And in his place, a new ruler came. And you know how that is. The successor doesn't always remember the history. This new ruler was called Cambyses, or as he's called in the book of Ezra, chapters 3 and 4, Ahasuerus. The troublemakers who wanted to be involved and were excluded by the Jews, those troublemakers wrote letters creating a stop to the building process. And eventually... Trouble after trouble, blow after blow, discouragement after discouragement, the people decided, why even try anymore? And so they stopped. Instead, they turned all of their energy to their own private lives, building up their own comfort, planning their own future, and neglecting the work of God in building the temple. They got used to worshiping in the ruins. You know, at first, we've got to get these ruins out of here. They're, they're blocking the way into the temple. But after a while, well, we'll just go around the stones. No big deal. Then came the year 520 B.C., the year we're starting in verse 1. In that year, God raised up four very important people. First was Zerubbabel. If you're looking for a name for your son, I'd skip that one altogether, principally because Zerubbabel means begotten in Babylon. Zerubbabel becomes the governor of the city. He's the civic ruler. The second important guy was Joshua the high priest, the son of Jehozadak. 
He was the spiritual leader of that city. And two very important prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And these men were giving messages from God. Come on, don't give up, you guys. Build the temple. Finish the work of God. God has a lot more in store. And so they built. And within five years, the year 515 B.C., the temple was completed. So we now have a chronology and we have a motivational history. We know that the first temple, the Temple of Solomon, stood from the 10th century B.C. until 586 B.C. We've covered that so many times. It was destroyed. Started to be rebuilt. Stopped. But eventually, from 520 principally to 515, those five years, the majority of the work was done. Which takes us now to chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Haggai. Now, as we're getting into this, let me tell you that there are four messages. These are rapid chapters. There's only two of them. They're relatively short. And don't worry, we'll finish it by the evening's end. I don't know when we'll end the evening, but we'll finish it by the evening. No, I'm just kidding. We'll end on time. There's four messages here. And each of these messages given by this prophet from God highlight four impediments to finishing the work of God. And if you ever wonder, why is it that God's work doesn't get completed corporately in churches, individually in my life? This book will give you four reasons why. Reason number one, that's the first sermon, the first message. Self-centeredness. People turn toward their own private world rather than looking out for the work of God corporately. Reason number two, interestingly enough, nostalgia, looking backwards, will hinder the work of God in the present and going into the future. Third reason, unconfessed sin in your life. And fourth, unbelief. All four of those reasons will hinder, will be impediments to the work of God. So, verse 1, in the second year... Of King Darius, in the sixth month, this is the month, the Jewish month of Elul, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, something I'd like you to make a note of. You've noticed that typically the prophets will date their writings by the reign of the kings of Judah. Why? Because the work of God in Jerusalem, the center of their worship, the temple, that's how you date things. You, you, they always dated in regards to the work of God in their own country. So typically prophets would date their writings according to the kings of Judah and their reigns, but not this one. This prophet, now after the exile, post-exilic, will date his book according to the reign of King Darius, a Gentile king. Why? Because the time has shifted biblically. We're now in what is called the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles, when Jerusalem will fall under Gentile domination, non-Jewish domination. All the way from the time of Nebuchadnezzar, the fall of Jerusalem, all the way through. Remember Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Did you know that Jerusalem lost its sovereignty in 586 B.C.? and was under various occupations until June of 1967. That's pretty recent. Now, I think that the times of the Gentiles for Jerusalem ended in 1967, which places us, and I can't give you any exact proportions or dates, but it places us in a very interesting period of history. 
Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In June of 1967, Jerusalem was liberated, and since then and presently is under the dominion, the rule of the Jewish state of Israel. So the dating here is according to the times of the Gentiles. Verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says... Notice he doesn't say, My people say, but this people. Now they still were his people. They were his own special treasure. But God calls them this people. Parents, you know what this is like. When in a family a child misbehaves... And I can take my own family. I mean, the family that I was raised in. There were times when my dad would come home and my mom would say, This son of yours did such and such. Not my son, but this son of yours. You see, I was her son when I was obeying. I was his son or this son when I was disobeying. So God says, This people... The word, verse 3, of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. It seems that indifference had set in. People were used to the rubble used to the refuse, used to the stones. They got tired of the work of God, and they had all sorts of excuses why they couldn't do the work. Oh, there's just too much work, and we're too tired. And it's such a big job, and there's so many people around that don't want us to do it. Let's just quit. They had several excuses. This prophet is here to dispel every excuse. The main problem, of course, in the first message was self-centeredness. They were turning inward rather than looking upward and turning outward to do God's work. It was Billy Sunday who said, Oh, an excuse is simply the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Think of all the excuses we tend to come up with. Even for coming to church. Oh, the weather's so bad. It's interesting, when the weather is bad, the movie theaters are still packed. Well, there's so many people at that service, the crowds, it's hard to go get into the parking lot. Yet I noticed the malls at Christmas and virtually any time, people will walk long distances and park in the outer fringes of the parking lot. Well, that preacher is so weird. I mean... He, he preaches such long studies, especially Wednesday nights. And yet people will sit for hours, even if the movie's three hours long. And some not even get up for popcorn. This group of people had excuses why God's house couldn't be built. In verse 4 comes a rhetorical device an interrogation question. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? It seems that way back then, the big thing in Jerusalem were these fitted cedar panels that they would use as wainscoting in their homes and even on the ceilings of their roof. Now, I don't know if you've ever smelt a cedar chest or a cedar closet. There's nothing like it. Can you imagine taking an entire home or a few different rooms and lining it completely with cedar? So here these people were all about having the most luxurious dwelling places, yet they were going to their church, the temple, and there was rubble piled up. And so the question, well, you say it's not time to build God's house. Is it time for you to build your paneled cedar homes and to dwell in them? Really, this is an issue about priorities. What's first? Who's first? What's most important? 
Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, around verse 33, If you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all of these things will be added unto you. What things? What you need to eat. What you need to drink. What clothes you need to wear. The rent you need to pay. The house payment you need to pay. If you seek first God and His kingdom and His righteousness... All these things that you need will be added to you. They weren't doing that. They were seeking first their own kingdom. So this is a reverse of Matthew 6.33. And watch what happens. Verse 6. Oh, by the way, in verse 5, you see that little phrase, consider your ways? Four times in this book, that is mentioned. That's one of the little telltale signs that you're in this book. You could quote that little saying and you know you're in Haggai. Consider your ways. Literally, set your own heart upon the path that you have chosen. Think about where you're going. Think about where this path is leading you. You have sown much and you bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. In other words, the focus of your lives, all this self-centered pursuit to build your own comfort, to have your paneled house, all of this self-centeredness, is not bringing you any kind of economic stability. Now that's why you've done it. You thought, if I forget God's work, after all, there's so many troubles, why try to build it? Forget it. I'm going to turn to my own private world, my private pursuits, building up my life, my family. It's all about me. You would think that in keeping that kind of a priority, you would ensure some kind of economic stability. But the reverse is happening. In fact, in all that you're seeking to build up for yourself, you're not even able to have the basic needs of your life met. It would be the equivalent of saying, okay, why is it that you not only work at a job, but you work extra hours all the nights you can work, you work through lunchtime and all your breaks, and you're broke? See, this is the reverse of seek ye first the kingdom of God. They're not seeking God or His kingdom. They're seeking their own kingdom. Nothing's being provided. It's like trying to walk up a descending escalator. Remember doing that? I actually tried that a couple months ago, just for fun. You really have to go at a quick pace. If you go at a normal pace, you're making progress, it seems, upward, but the force is driving you backwards, and you're actually descending, not ascending. Here they are trying to get ahead, and they're getting behind. So, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, and bring wood, and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it, and be glorified, says the Lord. So what's the solution? <laughs> be obedient. You want to know how to fix this? Here you are, turning inward to your own ways, building up your house, your beautiful future, getting it all set. You can't even get by. Solution, head to the hills. Head to the hills, bring your axe, cut down the tree, bring in the lumber, build the temple, and the Lord will bless you. Notice that it says that I may take pleasure in it, and be glorified, says the Lord. Now, it's not that God was into buildings, and I don't want you to misunderstand. This prophet is not saying, it's because God doesn't have a beautiful church to be in that He doesn't bless you. It's nothing to do with the building. It has everything to do with the attitude of their hearts and their priorities. Their priorities were them. Their priorities were not God. You remember God, um, Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria, there's coming a day when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will men worship, for the Father is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's not about the place. It's about the priority of heart. 
It's not about the art in worship, the building. It's about the heart in worship. And because your hearts, O Judah, are after your own private security, you're not really seeking the Lord. That's why you're not blessed. Solution. Build a house. Build a temple. That I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. By the way, that's a very important little verse. Did you know that the purpose of your life... Now here's the purpose of life. You've ever wondered, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose for my existence? The reason you're on this earth, it's pretty simple. To bring pleasure to God that He might be glorified. Now some of you, if you're not sold out to God, you're maybe not a believer, you hear that and you go, I don't like that. Tough. Tough. I didn't make the world. I'm not the creator. I didn't write the book. But I know that the one who did created the world and everything in it for his own pleasure, that he might be glorified. So if you want to have an aim and a goal, in fact, if you want to filter all of your decision-making processes through a sieve, let this be the sieve. Does this please the Lord and lead to him being glorified? It'll make a lot of decisions a lot more easy. If that's the grid by which you make your choices. You see, in the book of Revelation, we're told what the anthem of heaven is going to be. We even know the words of some of the songs we're going to sing. For your pleasure, Revelation chapter 4, all of these things were created. So is your life bringing pleasure to God? Theirs weren't. God says, the solution, live your life to bring pleasure to me. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You looked for much, verse 9, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above withhold dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. Now you know something, and this is, this is to me key. Because if you're looking for a reason in your mind, why is this happening to the people of Judah? Understand this. It wasn't a sudden choice. It was a gradual series of choices. Now this is one of the most important truths ever. You know, in science, there's a law called entropy. And the law of entropy states that in a closed system like we have here, things tend toward decay. They run down. They don't run up. They don't get wound up. They tend toward decay. Energy gets lost over time in a closed system, unless it's acted upon by an outside source or force. That's a law of nature. It's a scientific explanation for why we see things decaying around us. What is true in the physical world is also true in the social world, in the organizational world, and in the spiritual world. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, I got something against you. You have left your first love. I hear that often misquoted. You've lost your first love. No, they didn't lose anything. They left it. And it wasn't a blowout. It was a slow leak. It was entropy, spiritual entropy over time. The fire that once burned brightly for the Lord now was waning. The very church at Ephesus who couldn't wait to worship God on Sundays with all of their lives, all of their heart, all of their strength, that same sizzle wasn't there. They came less frequently. When they came, they complained more often. The fire that was once there was waning, just like this people who once said, let's build God's house. But they have grown weary of the work of God. Now, you know the Bible says, don't grow weary in well-doing. Actually, don't grow weary. Listen, it's okay to get weary in the work. Just don't get weary of the work. 
Don't get weary and say, I quit. Just say, okay, I'll take a break and I'll get renewed and I'll go back to it. Not, I quit. I'll quit and I'll use all my energy inward. Get tired in the work, but never tired of the work. Verse 11, For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all of the remnant of the people, so the bulk of those 50,000 who returned, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God sent him, and the people feared in the presence of the Lord. Now let me just tell you, this is what preachers live for. They live for it. When over time they watch people who take in the word of the Lord, saturates their heart, it motivates their actions, and they start changing because of it, either giving their lives to Christ through evangelism or growing into areas of service. When people are responding to the message of the Word, oh, i got to tell you, preachers, pastors, teachers, live for it. You know, John wrote the Gospel of John in three little letters. First John is his most famous, and then second and third John. The third epistle to John was written to a guy named Gaius. And he said, I've heard reports and testimony that you're walking in the truth. I rejoice, for I have, listen to what he said, for I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's my joy, John said. That's what I live for. When I hear that I ministered to you, Gaius, and that you're taking the truth, and you're walking in the truth, I have no greater joy. That's what I live for. So they did it. They heard it. They listened to the words of Haggai the prophet. The message fell on good soil. And they did it. There's a great little passage of Scripture tucked in the book of 2 Thessalonians where Paul pens this little letter to the church and he said, When you received the word of the Lord as preached through us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which is able to work in you effectively. When you heard that Bible study, when you heard that point of teaching or preaching or discipleship class, you took it to heart as, this is God speaking to me. And you received it not as the word of man, but as the word of God. Then, verse 13, Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying... Now, this is just a a short message. It's a little P.S. It's a very encouraging postscript. Here it is. I am with you, says the Lord. Gotta love that. The people get stirred up and further stirred in the next few verses we'll read, but they go, okay, we hear the message loud and clear. It's not about us. It's not about our own little worlds. We're going to finish the work of God. They responded. And as soon as they said we respond, then the prophet comes, Hey, I got another message from God for you guys. The Lord's with you. Really? What else do you need? What else do you need? He didn't say, Okay, um, I just got a letter today from uh, Persia. They're going to fund this. $10 million check is coming in the mail. Oh, finally, we got support. All they really needed to hear is, God's with you. He said so. See, if you have the presence of God in your calling, in your life, you don't really need anything else. Moses said to the Lord, Okay, Lord, I know you're leading us forward, but if you don't go with us, then don't don't make me go from here. God said, I'm with you. Go for it. That's a great little P.S. The Lord is with you. I am with you, says the Lord. So, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all of the remnant of the people, 
And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. Hmm. Change happened in 23 days. If you compare verse 15 with verse 1, there's been 23 days since the first message. And the day that they listened and changed their heart, it's marked down. You know, I do think that spiritual dates are important. I think it's good to keep a record, to keep a journal of significant events and to write it down on this day. This is what happened. This is how my prayer was answered. Your spiritual birthday is one of them. I remember the first time I heard a 20-some-year-old person say, I'm two years old today. I thought they were nuts. I go, no, you're not. You're, what, 25? They go, no, I don't mean physically. Two years ago today, I gave my life to Christ. I was born again two years ago. It's my spiritual birthday. I went, oh. It's the first time I was introduced to this concept. Certain dates become very significant. And this date, this date of full commitment, was written in this journal on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. And who knows? But that tonight, June the 27th, 2007, God will stir up something in your own heart. I don't know what it is. And it becomes a significant turning point for you that you'd mark that date. So... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people. Now, before we run through chapter 2, there's a principle. The people are doing the work. They're not just sitting back going, okay, I'm just going to sit here and do nothing and just whatever and trust the Lord for whatever. No, they heard the message and they said, we're going to put our hands to work on the temple. However, who's energizing the work? Who's stirring up the heart? Who's putting it into the heart? God is. Now here's the principle. There is a cooperation in doing the work of God. When you turn from self-centeredness and you decide, hand to the plow, doing what God called me to do, and that is, I'm going to work hard put every bit of effort into it, knowing that God is going to energize my work. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I'm saying once your salvation is established, you're a child of God, and you engage in the work of God, you put all your heart, all of your effort into it. In Philippians chapter 2, we have that principle laid out for us. Work out your own salvation, said Paul with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So when it comes to obeying God, put every ounce of energy into it, knowing that the one who's energizing the work from beginning to end will be the Spirit of God. You can't do it in the energy of the flesh. But if you put your hand to the plow, you'll discover the energy comes, the Ability comes. You know, too many people go, I can't do that. You problem, you'll probably never do it. But if you say, okay, God told me to do it, so if He gives me the command, He must then provide the ability. I'm going to do it. You discover something really cool. It's like plugging something into the socket. Bing, light goes on. The thing starts humming along. Wow! You discover the powers there. And the obedience is plugging it in. They started the work. Now, chapter 2. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you only got 15, 16 minutes left, Skip. You took a long time in that first chapter. Not to worry. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying... Now we're coming to the second message. And here is the second impediment 
to finishing the work of God in your life. Nostalgia. Looking backward rather than looking forward. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? The date in verse 1 is given as the seventh month. And it's the 21st day, meaning in the Jewish calendar, it was the seventh, second to the final day, the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember that feast? It signified God's provision in the wilderness. They dwelled in booths for seven days, and they had a huge feast, a convocation on the eighth day. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was to be joyful, happy, exciting, In the book of Ezra, we're told what happened. The blanks are filled in. I mentioned that in um, 536... uh, No, no, in, in 520, they started the rebuilding process. In the spring of that year, they started clearing the rubble away. By fall, they had already laid the foundations of the temple. It's recorded in Ezra. When the foundations were laid and they started putting the stones and getting kind of the infrastructure of that temple complex together, a great shout of joy went up, which you'd expect. Hallelujah! Look at it! The work of God in our midst. The temple's being built. But there was a group. The Bible identifies them as the older folks. They'd been around. They were familiar with the history. They remembered the Temple of Solomon. They saw it in its glory. And they saw what was being built by Zerubbabel, and it looked schmaltzy in comparison to Solomon's temple. So some of these older folks started wailing and crying, like that. I imagine. So you have two groups. Woo, yay, hallelujah. And, then, oh, ho, ho, ho. and it says you couldn't tell the difference sometimes between the joy and the wailing. It was a mixed signal. What was happening? They were looking back to something that happened prior to this building. Oh, this isn't as good as the previous temple. Oh, it's not as grand. Oh, it's not as beautiful. If you want to live a miserable life, try to go forward looking backward over your shoulder. If you try to do that in any endeavor in life, try to do it literally, you'll get hurt. But I know a lot of people who do that figuratively, spiritually. Oh, well, it's not as good as it used to be. Oh, please. Now, I will tell you, The Babylonian Talmud, in the first part of it, in the Mishnah, it says that there were five things that were in the Temple of Solomon that were missing in the Temple of Zerubbabel. Number one, the Ark of the Covenant. That's significant. Obviously, they had either taken it captive or stashed it somewhere, but it wasn't in that temple. Number two, the sacred fire or the holy fire. Number three, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. Number four, the spirit of prophecy. And number five, the two little stones, the Urim and the Thummim. Those five items weren't present. But God promised His presence, right? Remember I said, that's all you need. So they're looking back, oh, it's not as grand, it's not as good. I'll go on because I could get wound up on this. (laughs) Verse four, yet now. Be strong, Zerubbabel. See, he's hearing all this, good and bad, says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Don't let the naysayers, don't let the people who look back and remember what it used to be like, don't let them get to you. In doing the work of the Lord, you have to be concerned with the present work. It's good to look back as a basis. We had a 25th anniversary. It was fun to look back. But you know what? That was then. 
This is now. What is it God wants to do now? What is it God wants to do in the future? Always has to be our attitude in the work of the Lord. You know, if you compare any work with previous grand works, you're always going to come up short. See, I could sit here and go, yeah, the Lord's done a work in Albuquerque, but compared to Pentecost, pretty bad. (laughs) Well, it's pretty neat work here, but, well, compared to the Great Awakening, it's, oh, this is the work of the Lord. Rejoice in it. Get excited about it. What will the Lord want to do now? Hey, work, he says. Be strong. Have you noticed in the Bible how often that commandment is given, by the way? Be strong. The Lord said to Moses when they were going in to take the land and there were giants and enemies, don't worry, don't fear because of them. Be strong. Be strong, God said to Joshua. I'll divide the land. Be strong, Joshua said to the people, and be of good courage. David to Solomon said, Be strong and build this house, the temple. Ephesians chapter 6, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. See, we always need to hear that. You're doing the work of God? March forward. Don't worry about it. Be strong. God's with you. Don't fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more... It's a little while. I will shake heaven and earth and sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now, it's pretty obvious by the context, by the reading, by the language, that the prophet is rapidly moving us out of the temporary, upcoming temple of Zerubbabel all the way into the future. And we know this pretty easily. Because the only verse in the book of Haggai that is quoted in the New Testament is in verse 6. Once more, a little while, I will shake heaven and earth. In Hebrews chapter 12, that verse is quoted. And it's the final, ultimate shaking that God will do in the end of times. So, yeah, this temple isn't what it used to be, but wait, do you see what's coming? Okay, the people were going, Oh, it's not what it used to be, the Shekinah glory. The cloud was there in the temple of Solomon. There's no cloud here. Who cares? Because this next temple, the temple of Zerubbabel, which will be enlarged by Herod the Great, you know who's going to walk one day into that temple? Jesus Christ, the desire of all nations, the Messiah. Jesus would show up in that temple and say, one greater than Solomon stands here. But he takes us out even further because he talks about a time of peace in the future. And we don't have time to go through 10 chapters tonight, but on your own, go and read Ezekiel's chapter 40 through 48. In detail is a description of the future temple, the millennial temple, from which Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. A more glorious temple. The Lord Himself will dwell in that temple. The desire of all nations. A messianic reference, even the traditional writings of the Jews point this out as a messianic. Notice in verse 8, he says, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord. Now it could be, I'm just imagining, that some of those older folks that remembered the temple of Solomon and were looking back, remembered how much silver and gold there was in that first temple. And there wasn't any in this one. This was... This was pretty raw. You know, this was pretty rocky and stony, not not much gold. Get this. It's estimated that if you were today to replicate the Temple of Solomon with its building, its building structures, its vestments, its instruments, its uh, implements, silver and gold, etc., it would cost, in modern standards, $174 billion 
dollars to build that structure today. Just the gold overlay in the Holy of Holies itself is worth $20 million. So I love it that God says, Ah, don't worry, the silver's mine, the gold is mine. But He promised to be with them and in the future dwell in a temple where there would be peace. Now, verse 10, the next few verses, gives the third impediment to the work of God, and that is unconfessed sin. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, so two months after what we just read, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? And the priests answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it become unclean? And so the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now, carefully consider from this day forward and from before, stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord since those days when one came to heap twenty aphas, but there was ten, when one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, and there were but twenty, I struck you with blight, mildew, hail of all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, and consider it. Is there seed still in the barn? As yet, the vine, the fig tree the pomegranate, the olive tree, have not yielded fruit. But from this day forward, I will bless you. What was all that about? Very simple. Impurity is much more easily spread than purity. You see, if you carried holy meat, something that had been set apart and sanctified and ceremonially cleansed for a purpose in the tabernacle or the temple, if you were to touch something unclean, would you make that which is unclean clean? No. You would defile that which is clean. It's sort of like health and sickness. If you're a healthy person and somebody has a contagious disease, if you touch the person with a contagion, Will they be healthy because you're healthy? No, but you are more apt to become sick than that person becoming healthy. Sickness spreads, impurity spreads, health doesn't. Here was God's point. You're doing the work of the Lord, but you're defiling everything you're touching. Every sacrifice you're offering. Every worship service you're involved in. Because the attitude of your hearts is defiled. You are doing this stuff outwardly, but there's unconfessed sin inwardly, and that attitude of holding on to that, not dealing with it, defiles everything. Unconfessed sin can hinder the work that God wants to do in your life and do through your life. And by the way, anytime you're involved in the work of the Lord... It should be done with great joy. Just as in that second, the nostalgia part where people are looking back, oh, it's not... When it comes to the worship of the Lord, it ought to be done with great joy. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, Our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful people is in keeping with God's nature. You know, I've noticed that bars have happy hour. I like the name... I don't like what it signifies, but I think churches ought to have happy hour. And Wednesday night from 7 to 8.30 is happy hour. And Saturday night from 6.30 to whatever, whenever we're done, and Sunday morning, the, that, those are happy hours. 
We should, with the right attitude, come and worship the Lord. Let's finish out this book since we have 60 seconds. (laughs) The fourth impediment to the work of God is unbelief. Now notice this. Again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel. Now here's not a message for the people, though it's on the same day of the month. This is a specific message to the leader, Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Unbelief can hinder God's work. Here's what is happening, and we know this from here and from Ezra. This leader, Zerubbabel, was getting discouraged. And you know, Satan loves to discourage leaders, especially spiritual leaders, especially those who are involved in God's work. The kingdoms that were around him, the enemies that surrounded the nation and caused havoc and trouble with Cambyses, Ahasuerus, the other kingdoms, the great powers of the world, made him feel very small. He only has a few people. They can't defend themselves. How are they going to finish? And he's just getting to a place where he's probably not believing it's going to get done. Hang in there, God would say. If I can shake the heavens and the earth, I'm going to make sure that the Gentile nations aren't going to compete with you. You're going to get the job done. And in that day, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, says the Lord. I'll make you like a signet ring or a signature. I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if I had time, I would explain a little bit more of uh, the immediate as well as the messianic implications of this verse. We don't have the time. We'll have to wait for the Bible from 30,000 feet when we cover it again. But let me ask you this. What work of God is He wanting to do in and through you? Is there something in your life that God is wanting to do and you've, you've sensed it? He's been stirring you up. Maybe you've become disobedient. Maybe nostalgic. Oh, it'll never be like that. In comparison to that work, my work would never be as good. Oh, that used to be wonderful. Or maybe you're turning inward. It's all about you and your comfort and your little world and your own family. Something to examine as you leave tonight. What is the work God wants me to do? And then, as you lay that before Him, you ask the Lord to stir up your heart. Put it in your heart. Psalm 37, delight yourself on the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll implant the desire that He wants you to have to do His work. I've always loved that analogy of 211 versus 212 degrees. At 211 degrees, water will boil, but one more degree it becomes steam that could power a steam engine or a steam ship, and it could move that thing across the world. Just one more degree. Maybe you're at about 180 degrees, 190, maybe even two, maybe even 211, but just ask God for one more degree. That extra push that extra stirring of His Spirit to finish the work that God wants to accomplish through your life. I know He has a great and greater work for us all to accomplish here in this town and around the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now is the time to mount up, to rise up, and to say yes in cooperation with your Spirit, to say, Here I am, Lord, send me. To say, Spirit of God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, use me. We pray that, Lord, that we would do your work. Put our hand to the plow, knowing that, Lord, you energize 
all of our efforts for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.